0: Hi, everyone. Brendan here from Vet Gurus. Mark and I thought we would just release an extra episode for you, for all of those of you sitting at home during these tough times and being isolated. We thought you might want something else to lull you off to sleep. So enjoy this extra episode, and we will have another one out later on this week. Speakers or guest um, honorary vet gurus, Mark, um, in the future. We've got a couple of people that we are going to tee up to interview, aren't we, Mark? And we won't mention who that is, but one of them has said yes again as as we um, discussed off-air um, via text recently, and I'm really looking forward to interviewing that person, Mark. I, I always love it. Um, it is, it's,
1: you know, you and I get together and, and uh, bash each other's ears about um, various things, and, and sometimes it does feel a bit, you know, I enjoy the feedback, the emails, all that sort of stuff, but um, actually sharing the microphone with some of the people we admire, um, it, it sort of like does add another dimension to our podcast, Brendan.
0: Are we going? Guess what? <laughs> yes, no. Guess what? Guess what? You got, you I got thought, that out of the way very early this week. I, I, ne- I need to put I need to put the mute on very early so it's out of the way. And I was flicking through the articles, our news articles, <laughs> and trying to work out um, the spin on these particular articles. Yes, Mark, I, I was listening, and yes, we thoroughly enjoy, and they're always the most listened to um, by the statistics the ones where we interview somebody and we we like to get a bit of background, don't we? When we, when we chat to veterinarians and, and what they've been doing with their lives or life and um, how they got to where they are and where they're going well, in they're the future. Always and it's uh, much more <laughs> amazing and
1: complicated than you sort of imagine. You know, the, the pathway that people take is it's, um, it, it always leaves me just a little bit amazed and excited that, uh,
0: you know, life turns strange corners and good things happen. And then you realise how boring our (laughs) lives are, Mark, or at least I I think with myself. So, yes, so that's something to look forward to in the next few episodes. And um, vetgurus.com, the place to go. little plug about our website and also a link there to patreon.com where you can throw us a bone as we talk um, about it and that's giving us a little donation to help help our costs um, because it does cost a few dollars per month um, to run the, well, the website and and also the hosting. And um, we do the rest for love, Mark, don't we? We do the rest for love. Um, um, We don't have a review this week, so I reckon you need to jump into something about you and fishing. wonderful story that, um,
1: (laughs) that, that uh sort of I appreciate the quirkiness and the 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 uh the way that um communication has lent itself to like particular backwaters of interest back cultures um and this is a great example of uh a researcher an ichthyologist um who for many years he was uh, he'd identified a particular sort of fish that um that he thought might be a new species. Uh, that's Jeff Johnson from the Queensland M- Museum, um, and he was looking for a uh, you know a specimen. Um, he'd, he'd sort of formed the opinion that this fish was around a different type of rock cod to those that are, that had previously been described. Um, anyway, he um, he got a, a, a photograph. Well, it was a photograph sent to him by um, a, a fisherman. Um, who had uh, found the nondescript-looking groper, um, and um, once he got the the, the picture, um, that no, that's the one. Fifteen years ago, when he first discovered it, um, he got sent he got sent the picture, and the yes, by the time he got there, the fisherman had um, eaten it before he had a chance to, uh, you know, make it the type specimen. So this had happened quite a few times in the 15 years in between when um, <laughs> when the specimen would be fried up and served with fish and chips and a squeeze of lemon before he got a chance to take it back to the museum and, and uh, describe it formally um, until... 2017 when a fisheries inspector called him up and said he'd found an unusual looking cod in a catch and he sent a photograph and once again Jeff realised that this was the fish he'd been after anyway it started playing out the same way as it had all every other time the fish had already been sent to the fishmongers and um, Mr Johnson was driving madly around the markets of North Brisbane trying to find the fish and uh, this time he uh, managed to get to the front of the queue at the fishmongers, handed over some cash and got four specimens of the previously undescribed. And minimum Um, chips as well. (laughs) (laughs) No one else in the world knows what minimum chips is. That's a peculiarly peculiarly Victorian thing, Brendan. I've discovered about minimum chips myself. Um, And no one else in the world does minimum chips. Well,
0: let's explain what minimum chips is. If you go to the Fish and chip shop and you order, well, some fish usually, obviously, um, and you ask for some chips to go with it, um, typically you'll say minimum chips, and that means the, the minimum price um, for the minimum number of chips, which is not three chips or so, it's probably 2 or $2.50 or so. So I'm surprised I didn't think it was a particularly Victorian thing here in Victoria, Australia. Um, so, it, So when you go and order chips Up Newcastle Way, Mark, you don't ask for minimum chips. What do you ask for? They have have this strange thing
1: in other jurisdictions um, called a sign. And so you look at the sign and there'll be (laughs) small, medium and large. And if you want small, you'll say, can I have a small chips? Um, But but it's sort of also, for those of us who are not familiar with the term, it sounds a bit, um, I don't know, a bit um, uh, uh, overly... Conscious of how much you're paying, you know, a little bit um, uh, um, concerned about money. Like I just want no. minimum chips, whatever, whatever this. Bloody store will sell me as the
0: lowest number of chips. That's no, the, you, you got it all wrong, Mark. Minimum chicks, ma- maximum value, no. um, and, and, and minimum, minimum conversation. Um, <laughs> one and get your chips. No, but, um, well, there you go. I learn, learn something every day, Mark. Um, so yes, this fish, and, um, I was a bit disappointed because he named it, um, well, he named it a bit boringly, didn't he? Epinephalus. Fusco marginatus based on the um, markings on the side of it. Um, oh, I thought that was the,
1: the – there was a,
0: um, a fuscus uh, tan sort of sauce on the edge of the plate when he first <laughs> – Yes, I, I would have preferred if he didn't um, name it after the the fish and chippery he he bought <laughs> it from. But um, yes, no, great story, good story. But my one's – the my, well, my first one's a very quick one, a bit of a sad one, um, but – Gee, it's a bit of a theme, this one, isn't it? Um, Indiana woman found dead with python wrapped around her neck in a house filled with snakes, which was reported um, from the New York Daily News in October 2019. And an Indiana (laughs) woman, I'll start again. An Indiana woman, she was just found dead with a snake, reticulated python reportedly which was supposedly about eight feet long, eight foot long, wrapped loosely around her neck at the time. And it was a 36-year-old, so a young 36-year-old woman. Um, She was unresponsive when medics arrived and they couldn't revive her. And, Mark, this is a bit that's a little bit scary in that it was a house that was being renovated or had been renovated specifically to house snakes and there were about 140 snakes living there. With twenty of them belonging to her, so I don't know whether it was a share house or, or they were saying that her husband or partner or whatever had had um, the other snakes. But gee, it's a bit sad. So who knows what happened? Whether she was just had her favourite snake out, and there is a bit of a, a, a picture they have off Facebook with her with um, one of these retics wrapped around her neck um, as her Facebook photo that they took um, with the article there um perhaps she you know nodded off or something and um yeah then she was strangled by this but sad but you know it's 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 a little bit of a recurring theme isn't it um it's not the first person that has been strangled by their own snake or a snake they've been caring for and um yeah, I don't want to put any puns on this one. It's a, a sad story, but um, I think it's one a of, bit the, of a the precautionary note, uh, isn't uh, it? Uh, yeah.
1: One of the themes I think about this is that uh, you know it's familiarity and contempt that that uh, we do. Those of us that uh, love reptiles and particularly the large constrictors are very impressive animals, mm-hmm. and um, most of the time they're 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 you know relatively. Um, Uh, easy to handle and relatively predictable. Um, And so with that uh, familiarity, I think some people start to lose track of the fact that um, uh, without any malice, uh, these large animals are extremely, extremely powerful. And uh, both you and I would know that even a modest-sized python, um, you know, we, we would be doing a physical exam, and if they feel unstable or unsure, and they need to get a grip, you're holding them in your arms, and they wrap themselves around your arm. Um, they can they can generate significant forces that um, that end up. Uh, um, blanching your hand and, and uh, making your hand go numb if you're not careful. And I think it's, um, it's, it is a good reason to mention this story and just remind everyone that if you're dealing with a large snake, take it seriously, don't be relaxed around them um, and uh, always do it with a couple of people and, uh, and uh, you can love them and care for them but don't, uh, don't treat them like uh, they're absolutely um,
0: not going to hurt you because sometimes they will. Definitely. And it reminds me of a client I had last week, Mark, with a large carpet python that I was, um, assessing. And he, halfway through the consultation, he decided to sort of drape it over his, um, around his, uh, um, over, around his neck, um, like a scarf. And, um, I thought, gee, this is going to be, um, an interesting situation because as you know, Mark, um when, when we start handling and doing the clinical examination of these snakes in the consultation room, they often get a tad stressed and when they do get a tad stressed and this snake hadn't it had eaten about a week and a half ago <laughs> and and it decided to let loose and um as you know the smell of those urates and, and urine and, and feces um can be quite interesting and it literally exploded and it was a big big um you know probably um one one and a half meter um python and he had a big mane of hair mark he, he didn't have a mullet but he had very long hair and um fortunately it, it did hit him um with 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 a reasonable amount of it but most of it was just down at the, the front of his t-shirt so um we spent a fair bit of the consultation just cleaning up the mess on the floor with that particular snake. So, yeah. Um, with that one, I just thought, no, I'm going to let it go. He should know. He's, a, <laughs> he's an experienced keeper. Um, if he gets um, pooped on by a snake, um, it's... um. It's not my fault, and um, it was quite amusing. Um, you know, those sort of things make my day. <laughs> so, yes, um, they can be very strong. So your second news story, Mark, is um, what's it about um, pain well, it elections. Is, and
1: it's always one of our favourite topics, and, um, and this is an article from the Clinician's Brief, an excellent uh, resource for clinicians. If I'm correct, Brendan, you can um, sign up for the Clinician's Brief without any charge. You just need to um, uh, prepare provides, Absolutely. provides free, email yeah. details and, you know, start an account. Um, and it is uh, excellent evidence-based data, you know, evidence-based uh, data resource. And this particular one um, comes from July this year and uh, uh, it's uh, a review of an article in the exotic animal and avian literature um, in the American uh, Journal of Veterinary Research uh, talking about... Um, a drug that we very frequently use in parrots, and so I'm always keen to to, um, get this sort of information. It's talking about uh, the pharmacokinetics of meloxicam um, in African greys. Now, we don't see large numbers of African greys. We do see a fair few, but it's interesting to note um, that they do, according to this study, um, uh, that uh, once-daily administration of meloxicam at uh well, you know we're generally using the drug at one milligram per kilogram in these circumstances um, that that dose i m or per oz um, once every day uh, maintained concentrations above those which were determined to be therapeutic in Amazon parrots in another study, so um, that's a very useful bit of information interestingly enough um, they uh, they looked at um Meloxicam at one point six milligrams per kilogram, um, and similarly as you would expect, the uh, the dose that dose um, given once a day maintained um, the plasma concentrations above therapeutic levels. Um, but it did; uh, there was some at least uh, biochemical evidence um, that. Um, that uh, this dose of meloxicam could lead to um, some damage in the kidneys, leading to uh, kidney cell necrosis. Um, so it, uh, it's very good, very new evidence that maybe we need to stick at uh, about one milligram per kilogram when we use this drug in African graze. The other interesting thing about this article was the cumulative effect um, that uh, the... Uh, Steady concentration uh, was not reached by the once daily doses until seven days after the first dose, um, and um, and so maybe the you know we need to think about um, limiting that uh, that dose um, uh, cause that may potentially cause problems. Um, I've got that time, that wrong, Brennan. It was two to four days after the initiation. Of, um, of medication that uh, the steady state was occurred. Um, and that uh, cumulative effect makes us worry that um, at the higher dose, we may definitely see uh, kidney cell necrosis um, if it's gone on for
0: periods longer than seven days. It's a, um, I, I love the little articles, the summaries they do with that, on that clinician's brief. And as you just mentioned, it's free to subscribe to and you'll get, I think... To weekly or monthly or something you may be able to adjust it how often you get the emails from them with their little summary so yeah it's a really good um resource and um we'll have a link to that on the um dot com on the um link to this particular episode mark so yeah good one um and, and the dose rates are, are listed in there as well and we don't typically mention the dose rates on air just to just to play safe, um, you can look them up um, from the link to the article. And um, my last one's a really quick one, Mark, and it's um, I don't know whether you've seen this website, Mark, or whether you um, browse around here, positive.news, the website, and um, I'm finding it quite positive, positive. Um, and it's a, a website devoted to um, positive news about all sorts of things. Um, so I think you should... Um, browse around there if you haven't gone there before and um, it's a magazine for good journalism about the good things that are happening, Mark, is what their their blurb is about Um, and they want to avoid the doom and gloom of of media and provide positive news about all sorts of things. Constructive journalism is what they talk about, Mark. So this particular article I, I pulled out because of you, Mark, and it's about a bus stops in Utrecht um, in the Dutch city of Utrecht have been transformed, Mark, and and hopefully you've seen the little picture there at the bus stop where they've basically planted um, on top of those little bus stops where you have that clear glass or perspex um, around the seat when you're waiting for the bus. They've planted on top um, that little protective layer there to stop you getting rained upon um, and keep the sun away. um, Plants there to help attract bees, Mark, so they've transformed 316 bus stops into mini urban havens for bees. So I think a great idea. And I actually quite like the look of it. Did you see the picture there? Quite colourful there. The pictures are awesome. Um,
1: And um, and I've got no doubt that they, when you do have that sort of living um, roof over the top of the the bus stop. My expectation would be that it would also have an effect on the temperature underneath and, um, as well as feeding the bees, one of the best things that they can do. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, would be very interested in, I think sometimes these things get set up and I don't want to be the negative one in the positive news segment, but, um, I wonder how much maintenance are they going to require? And, and, uh, those pictures show them in fairly green environments. Anyway, are they making a significant, you know, difference to the total amount of green, or are they adding particular plants to the spectrum of plants the bees can use? These would be all
0: interesting points, Brendan. Don't overthink it, Mark. Be positive. Be positive. <laughs> <laughs> and I expect that I'll be landing a few more positive news items um, because I have subscribed to their weekly, I think, um, email list, Mark. So um, It has been mentioned to me at work by
1: some of my colleagues who listen to our podcast that we may just dwell a little bit too much on the negative aspects of life. So uh, incorporating a resource like that into our uh, research fields Um, I think it's a good thing,
0: Brendan, more positivity. We will be more balanced as far as our positivity and negativity. And I do have a review coming up soon um, about um, something that I found quite positive, which is non-Vet related, but um, we'll Uh, well, look forward to that hopefully in the future. So let's jump into our main topic because we're going to do a... Very as, as usual, Mark, as, as, you, as you stress, um, a very punchy episode, this one, and um, the main topic here is based on a, a presentation I gave at the Rabbit Expo that was on in um, late 2019, and uh, it was a Geriatric Rabbit Care was the talk I gave to the vets there, and that one was based on a previous talk I did that I updated that was probably about 10 years before that, so it was a little bit old, so to speak, Mark, so I updated. it. <laughs> um, you like that? Um, so. I can could, I could see you've been working on that for some time. <laughs> So, yeah, we, well, basically I'm going to summarise what I said to the vets in that particular presentation and um, uh, my particular spin on geriatric rabbit care, both some of the diseases that we see and, and control of them and perhaps a little bit about prevention as well. But one of the first things I sort of... Um, got stuck into when I was doing that presentation is I had a bit of a think about the lifespan of the pet rabbit, Mark, and uh, not only that, at what age do we consider a rabbit geriatric? And and traditionally, I think, um, if you look in all the old little pet shop Books for rabbits, they talk about the average lifespan of rabbits still being about, you know, four to six or six to eight years of age. And these days in our practice, we're increasingly seeing a number of rabbits that are getting to eight or 10 plus. And and yeah, it's rarer um, um, to get ones that are 11 or so older, but um, we see a fair few getting 10 and older these days, Mark. So defining when they are geriatrics and interest in little philosophical debate, I think, Mark, um, because um, what I define a geriatric rabbit is a rabbit over three, Mark. What do you define as a geriatric rabbit? Well, it's interesting that you say that because um,
1: I think we do this human thing where we um, take the segments of life and, and try and match them up chronologically. So, you know, humans are geriatric, maybe if they're going to live to 80 odd years, it's probably only, we only think of them as being geriatric for the last 10 or 15 years of their life. Whereas I think most of our domestic animals have an extended senior period and they do become... Uh, Aged at a relatively what we would consider a relatively young age. And I think those domestic animals, yeah, I would have said four if you'd asked me uh, before uh, providing me with your answer. But um, I think that last well over half of the life of the rabbit that gets to be a teenager, um,
0: they've been old that whole time. Yes, and the other reason why I tend to... um, stress it at around about three or so is, is, is based on a little bit of science there and the main one is that um, there was a big health survey of pet rabbits and, and we'll link to that article uh, in the show notes there um, that was undertaken in Finland, Mark, um, where they how, how, do you, how do you pronounce the, na- author, the author's name of that article, Brendan? Oh, I can't quite read it. It's a little bit my eyes are not <laughs> struggling a little bit. Today. Um, um, I don't pronounce it at all. <laughs> I think that's just that's their name. Um, it gave some indication of the difficulties of recognising illness in 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 um, pet rabbits, and it was um, basically a survey where they. They took apparently healthy animals. So these were animals presented to vet clinics by clients, Mark, that were supposedly healthy um, just through an examination and they they undertook a few things, a clinical exam, survey radiographs um, and I think basic bloods as well with them and they found abnormal findings in around about 70% or just over 70% of the rabbits even though these are, were apparently healthy according to the owners. And the prevalence of health disorders was significantly higher in rabbits over three years of age, Mark. Over 80% of the rabbits over three years of age had health issues. And one of their conclusions was, and this is a quote from that paper, He was, because of the high prevalence of clinical and radiological findings in apparently healthy pet rabbits, regular physical examinations are advised, especially for animals over three years of age or three years old. So that's one of the other reasons why I tend to stress to clients. And I I literally, these days, um, when I have clients in with their rabbits that are three or older, I do say, did you know your rabbit's geriatric and it, and I think part of it is for the shock therapy as well to get the conversation going and then we talk about the specifics of some of the diseases that we are commonly seeing in rabbits that um, develop in at two or three or four years of age mark. So, yeah, so that's sort of my rationale behind it and especially with regard in a couple of the conditions that we'll talk about shortly. Um, some of them we covered in a lot more detail so we won't, um, in previous podcasts so we won't go through... the the details of of those ones, but um, there's a couple I want to sort of touch on, Mark, with it. Um, Yeah, and the first one, the obvious one that we see lots of is is dental disease, obviously, Um, and it's very commonly seen in those geriatric rabbits, and we've covered dental disease in rabbits in, I think, two of our previous podcasts, so jump onto betgurus.com and have a look at that, but, you know, it's probably... I don't know you with your clinic, Mark, but dental disease is probably just about the most common problem after, I suppose, cut stasis um, as far as um, what we see with pet rabbits. Um, would that be the case with you, Mark? It
1: is indeed, Brendan, and um, and it is almost like uh, the it's it's almost a little bit. Depressingly predictable that, um, that will get a rabbit that's three or four years of age that, um, has those characteristics changes, um, a re- a reluctance to eat harder and fibrous food, maybe slobbers, um, they, they often develop, uh, secondary ileus. And so, um, we're chronic nasolacrimal duct issues where, where, you know, they are, st- depressingly predictable that they, uh, a large number of them will have dental disease.
0: Yes, and as we'll mention later on in this little podcast, we'll talk about the long-term sort of management and, and pain relief and that um, for for rabbits, including the ones that have the dental disease. Um, and the next sort of condition that we commonly see, and this is one, and it's what I say to vets when I'm ever giving a little presentation on geriatric rabbit disease it's commonly seen in practice but not not commonly identified mark and that's spondylosis in rabbits and it is in a hell of a lot of older pet rabbits mark um, and even pet rabbits at one or two years of age as well so getting back to basic spondylosis is degenerative non-inflammatory condition of the vertebral column so and the good news is you can often see it on plain, Radiographs in, in a lot of cases where you see those ventral or lateral osteophytes there get marked and um, those vertebral end plate changes as well. So, those classic sort of spondylitic lesions that we see. Some of them do end up with spondylitis, spondylitis as well. So, those little, um, bridges that we end up getting can break off then we get an inflammatory sort of response there as well but um, so I sometimes lump it in spondylosis slash spondylitis with them so very 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 common and the clinical signs of spondylosis can be nothing with, with some of these but I always suspect it in any of these geriatric rabbits Mark so any rabbit over two or three years of age because it might show up as either nothing or be the primary cause of some of these other conditions or syndromes that we see with rabbits, these ones with chronic perineal urine or faecal stain, rabbits that just don't seem to be quite as happy as they used to be. They're not doing their binkies anymore. And, um, you know, it's one of the first things I reach for, Mark, um, playing radiographs on these, and it's amazing how many of them you'll, you'll find, this spondylosis that was sitting there that um, you didn't realise was going on there. And interestingly enough... Rabbits are used as a as a model um, in the laboratory for um, well looking at lumbar um, disc problems for humans and, and methods of potentially treating them because they're a natural disc degeneration model um, and and rabbits you know it's thought that potentially that the discs in rabbits degenerate or start to degenerate as early as not long after one year of age, Mark, which, you know, was pretty amazing when I first discovered that, that, you know, rabbit discs start degenerating when they're one year of age. So no wonder we start to see the spondylosis occurring um, fairly early on. So do you see lots yeah, of it? we see lots of it. We see lots and
1: lots of, um, of uh, spinal issues that we associate with uh, spondylosis. It's an interesting... Um, I struggle to wrap my head around it a little bit because in dogs, uh, we are traditionally taught as small animal practitioners that um, that that's an incidental finding that the the uh, Fusion of the vertebral joints making the spine more rigid is not something that 's likely to cause a kin- clinical problem in dogs unless we have those little fractures of the developing enthesiophytes. Um, but in rabbits it, it there 's definitely a whole spectrum of um, of uh, consequent uh, diseases and uh, and syndromes and um, changes that are directly related to uh, the nature of um, those spondylitic lesions. So, yeah, we see it quite often. Do you do you, um, do you you um sort of have a, a single, you know, do you get these
0: rabbits in and just fire a quick lateral through them, Brendan? Um, I usually sedate them to try and get um, decent positioning with them or give them a general anesthesia. So I time it with, you know, a bit of a workup with them and do full bloods on it as well with them. But I think you're spot on there in that, yeah, well, two things. I, I, I do think compared with other species that a fair number of these, in my opinion, are uncomfortable with it um, um, in, in that spinal region. So perhaps we do have a spond, spondylitis going on with some of those as well, not just a fused vertebrae that happens with that traditional spondylosis, but I think perhaps as a, a rabbit-specific sort of syndrome that happens with the way their discs degenerate and and I think there is a bit of a um, issue with potentially causing secondary pain whether it's pinching that nerve um, spinal cord as well but yeah I think you're spot on in there'll be a fair number of them that that We do have that spondylosis sitting there in that rabbit, so it has a back that is nowhere near as flexible as it used to be. So the changes that we're seeing with those are not necessarily always directly related to the pain of that back, but it's those secondary problems. So it's got a stiff back. So we get the secondary urinary yeah. tract problems, or or you know, perineal scald, or or pododermatitis, or you know, um, you know, twenty different disease <laughs> syndromes that we see with them. Yeah. Well, the other interesting so, thing about that, Brendan, and I
1: don't want to slow us down, but when I feel a dog's back has spondylosis, I I don't you know I uh, I won't find anything. If it has inflammatory changes, you'll get spasm and uh, ventraflexion and whatnot. In the rabbits with spondylosis, I regularly um, can't feel anything, can't feel a response, but they're prey animals so they conceal it. But they regularly get a response to treatment. If I um, see those uh, radiographic lesions and I treat them, um, then they, I, I get often dramatic response. So how do you treat them, Brendan?
0: Yes. Well, okay, going back one second. Yes, same story with me. I probably do see a few... Or, or have a few of them that I do think they do have a bit of a pain response when I'm gently palpating them or physically examining them. It, it may be me just trying to project that pain response um, as, as on, uh, I'm examining that rabbit. But, yeah, um, well... Treating those, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's well, it's our usual, isn't it? It's multi-modal analgesia with them. Um, so it's using, providing that they have adequate renal function. It's it's usually meloxicam is the first thing I put them on, and um, then it's considering some of them do seem, although in theory um, it it, it's, it usually doesn't work in most species when we have sort of spondylases Putting them on the those um, joint health products such as pentazan um but some of them do seem to respond to that um so the two main things i'd be using with them initially it's meloxicam and then often we end up with using um other pain relieving agents like gabapentin or even tramadol some of them seem to do quite well on tramadol i don't know whether you you find that with them so often they end up with on they're being on two or three you know a combination of those um, multimodal analgesics um, as well as looking at the underlying issues and correcting those as well and and one of the ones that we commonly see with them related to that um, is obesity because a lot of Rabbits are fat. A lot of pet rabbits are fat, so trying to get them on a bit of a, a diet and getting some of that weight off them, which, which will obviously help any musculoskeletal problems in them as well. Um, do you use anything else? No, that's probably.
1: We do get. We I don't know. Um, whether we have a different population or not, but we do seem to get um, a fairly decent result with pentosan and, uh, and obviously that makes me think of those facet joints as being a contributing factor as well. Uh, and those yes. treatments uh, lead us on to this, the second of the common things that we see in rabbits, Brendan. Do you, do you um, often see uh, um, the spondylosis rabbits have other
0: skeletal issues? Absolutely. And the classic one there is, and it's, guess what? Um We see this in in most, if not all species as they become geriatric and that's osteoarthritis. So I, I think it's something that sometimes if we're not dealing with a species like a rabbit commonly that you might forget that, hey, maybe this animal gets osteoarthritis like uh, the dogs and the cats that I'm seeing as they get older as well. So yeah, we, um, um, I see it fairly frequently in them or I do see it frequently with them and, and same sort of process as far as the indicating signs with the mark. That they struggle to groom. They may be having trouble ingesting their um You know, they just don't hop around anymore. They don't like to do their binkies. They they struggle to get into their litter tray. And um, then we're often reaching for the same sort of products that we just spoke about with the spondylosis treatment there, Mark. But um, also Getting back to, you know, ideally, um, um, you know, um, scientifically based, and we'd be doing those um, survey radiographs as our first step to try and just have a little poke around um, with our radiographs and have a look to see which joints are affected. And it's amazing how many of them we have some pretty, I've got some ongoing rabbits that have some pretty horrible arthritic changes going on there. With, um, and I think. What do you treat uh, this, uh, You know, the that, that
1: group of um, uh, analgesic and anti-inflammatory medications, the the uh, things like pentosan, um, the same as we do with the backs. Um, it, it is interesting. I, I take on board your point, though, that, um, you know, in dogs and cats, we tend to think of the smaller, lighter uh, animals having less of a problem, you know, the, with uh, arthritic change, that it's uh, an issue with... Um, large, rapidly growing, heavy breeds. Um, But um, but certainly uh, it it occurs in all species. We get um, budgerigars who have arthritic change. If they live long enough and work their joints hard enough, they're going to get into trouble and we should always be on the lookout. And particularly active animals like like, uh, rabbits uh, with relatively high impact. Those binkies, they do, Brendan. I think sometimes they land, you know... um, my experience from being a very high jumper when I was much younger makes me think those uh, rabbits will will hit the deck and do some damage to the joints uh, repeatedly when
0: they're... Uh... Well, Kate, Kate has said to me several times that when Mark comes home and he's so glad to be home, he, he does his binkies and um, I just wish he would stop doing it. He's going to hurt himself. <laughs> Um, the next one on the list is pododermatitis, and again it 's sort of tied in with the other two that we 've just mentioned there and um, it certainly doesn 't have to be age related but um, so we could see it in a very young rabbit that 's in poor um, poor condition or in a poor environment there mark so they 're on the, they 're on poor flooring, um, and we 've gone through that previously and that other uh, the podcasts we've done, um, and also unsanitary conditions there make them prone to it. But gee, I see a fair number of these older ones that do have these, um, sore hocks, as the clients will call it, um, that is, um, all tied in together and often it's that they're sitting abnormally with those back legs because they have that sore back or so that, that stiff back so that the normal, the normal anatomical um, and, or physiological um, way that the, the leg sits um, on the ground there is is um, altered. So um, we end up with um, unusual pressure on the leg there and on the hock there so they're prone to the pododermatitis. Um, and we've already mentioned the obesity with them as well. Um, so you know, what's your treatment? You know, apart from the pain relief, um, what 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 do you mention to clients, Mark, for these um, chronic pododermatitis cases? Assuming that we haven't got one that's they surgical, a bit of a a bit of a but, but even,
1: even the to ones do. that are um, just shy of um, of that sort of surgical th- treatment, um, they they I find them. Um, really, really difficult. Um, the, trying to get the animals to lose weight, trying to manage the, any infection, um, that necrotic tissue that's often at the core, um, uh, of some of the infected material. Um, geez, they, they just, uh, are very, very depressing cases. And um, I notice that uh, in some instances you go to um, to the point of considering amputation for those, you know, when you talk about surgery, we're not just talking about debriding the the compromised tissue. Um, you, you do need to consider um, uh, whether the, the leg is ever going to be useful to the animal. Um, so so I, I struggle with them a little bit, Brendan, and making sure that we... Uh, that we, yes. you know, the first thing is get that weight under control, work with uh, husbandry so the substrate is um, is soft and supportive, um, make sure uh, the environment is clean and there's not uh, a soiled unsanitary substrate. Um, obviously antibiotics, so all the analgesics we've talked about.
0: Um, but, geez, I, I, these are often very frustrating cases for me. And I think it's a big conversation or a long conversation that you need to have with the client when you have one that's potentially surgical because often it's not around very much longer that rabbit even if we do take it to amputation some of them still don't just don't cope with with having that leg off some do fantastic but um, it's not a simple simple surgery that um that osteomyelitic um pododermatitis case there mark um yes yeah, so and and it's a bit of an art i think with the supportive care with those ones as far as your bandaging techniques and, and using little you know little donut um, um bandages and 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 um, products to try and um, relieve the pressure on there and um it's a long haul with them and, and once they've developed the, the more severe changes there, I think it's, exactly, it's really just trying to keep it from getting worse and um, if it gets a little bit better, you, you've got to win. They're, they're really difficult to deal with there. Um, a couple of the other, I think the next two or three, Mark, I'm going to rip through really quickly because I want to talk about the supportive care bit and that's the, the other common ones that we see in, in these geriatric rabbits remembering I'm defining that as any rabbit over three, Um, uterine neoplasia, which we all know about. So remembering that the incidence of the uterine neoplasia increases with age. So um, all female rabbits should be desexed, even breeding ones. Um, And, um, yeah, the older they get, the greater chance that they'll have uterine um, neoplasia. And playing the odds, most of them, will be the adenocarcinomas that we've all seen so yeah um always have that on the list and you know getting back to basics there it's you know i was mention it to a to a student we had in the other week you know it's amazing how many rabbits that come in and go home with a sex change in our clinic <laughs> um that have been referred to us and um been seen by the local vet and yet they for many years and, and routine treatments and vaccinations and they forgot or or, or were Remiss enough not to double check that the boy was a boy um, and or the girl was a girl. Um, so yes, uterine is 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 something you need to always have on the list. Um, respiratory disease, gee, that's a that's a big can of worms, isn't it, Mark? And I think we need a full podcast on that one, um, which we will do. So respiratory disease in rabbits, we'll add that to the list and dealing with chronic respiratory disease. And, you know, the obvious signs are those chronic nasal problems and sneezing and snuffling and discharge and those nasolacrimal duct problems are not always due to dental disease. Um, they can be chronic respiratory and they're a bit of a challenge and I think it's often because we have an immunocompromised patient there that's aged and um, these um, organisms that are sitting there in the background will flare up. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, I think we'll deal with that one in a set completely separate podcast because we can easily talk for an hour on that one I think Mark Um, and the next one too that I wanted to mention is another one that um, we need to hold podcast on And that's renal disease chronic renal failure in rabbits is being increasingly diagnosed and the interesting thing there is the teaser for this one um, is that um, it's not just on bloods um, that you'll be able to diagnose it um and in fact, blood looking at urea and creatinine in a rabbit um, doesn't really tell you much at all as far as the renal, um, the renal um, factors and whether or not they're in renal compromise. Mark, we need to do the gold standard at the moment is the um, um, protein, urea protein creatinine ratio, measuring that. Um, so we'll talk about that in a specific podcast again. Um, but renal disease is very, very common and Very frustrating as far as trying to trying to manage those cases because we're just waiting. We're just trying to control it and um, keep the weight on them and and provide palliative care really for the renal disease ones. But um, I think we'll we'll talk about the treatment for that in the separate podcast. And the other one, which is another one that I think we're missing, and I'm sure I'm missing a lot as well, is is cardiac disease and. Again, like a lot of species, um, cardiac disease is is seen in the aged patient, Mark, and um, it can be quite a challenge, I think, um, in order to detect cardiac disease in rabbits because... We're probably missing it because the, unless we're doing um, an echocardiogram, I reckon we're, we're missing a lot of them. We're only picking them up on on necropsy, did? Would you entirely. agree with that? No? We've been, um, I've been trying to whack our ultrasound
1: probe on to uh, an increasing number of rabbits and uh, and a and number of other species as well. Um, and it's the classic case of uh, the more that you look, the more that you find. So I do, I agree with you entirely that uh, that how um. Aged rabbits, uh, uh, many of them are suffering from cardiac disease, and uh, and we're not seeing it because um, we're you know we're not necessarily looking for it.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely, and that's I think that's another one that we'll do a full. <laughs> podcast on so we'll cover we'll cover renal disease cardiac disease and respiratory disease there's three new pod, uh, podcasts to do um because i wanted to um for us to chat for the last five minutes or so on supportive care of these rabbits so these geriatric rabbits so these rabbits that may be geriatric or, or what i define as geriatric at three years of age and they get in these diseases how do we manage the mark, and, I, and I, I think it's getting back to basics with some of these. Not only providing pain relief for them, but providing other sort of management programs that um, the clients can not only contribute to but um, it will help the rabbit, Mark. So do you want to talk about some of the things that we we mentioned to clients with these aged rabbits with um, the supportive care well, that one we can of, do one at home? One of the first things
1: that uh, we always touch on is we try and make a bit of an appreciation about whether the rabbit is a single rabbit or a part of a, you know, a, a group of rabbits at home. And this is important because um, both grooming and social interaction are critically important to their quality of life and if we have a single rabbit um, then increasingly the the humans that form the social group for that rabbit will will become much more important to increase that social activity and um, and uh, and help with the grooming so um, we talk about the amount of time that needs to be committed it is Difficult because the rabbits are of, obviously less active, and so it's easy for people to think, "Oh, they don't want that time; they don't need that time anymore." Uh, but um, that's one thing that we just ask people to to be aware that um, that they need to commit that time to their rabbit as they age.
0: Yes, and I think that's where you need to view the family as a whole there, and, and sort of get a bit of a feel for, you know, is this somebody who doesn 't quite have the time to look after a geriatric rabbit, and um, I think you need to be candid with the clients about that and if they they 're working long hours and they, they have very unfortunately very little time to um, when they get home to to care for their rabbit then you you need to factor that into things, especially if, as you say, it was a bonded rabbit and the and the perhaps it 's a rabbit on its own now because the bonded um, partner has died um and we 've got a you know an arthritic rabbit that has renal disease and and the owner physically doesn 't have the time to to look after it then we need to start chatting to them about you know quality of life and um if they could provide the intensive sort of care and time with them, that rabbit may be comfortable for a longer period of time, but otherwise we need to start chatting about the the euthanasia decision with them um, yeah so yeah, the sorts of simple things the owners can do to to look after these animals are are, are things that like um providing litter trays um with the lip cut out of them and um rounded over and it 's amazing how many rabbits that getting on a bit that the owner mentioned that hey he he doesn't use his litter tray anymore he's peeing everywhere and perhaps you need to start thinking about is it a geriatric rabbit that has arthritis or other spondylosis or other conditions so it feels a bit uncomfortable or unable to jump into its tray to use it and once you cut that lip out of the litter tray it, it manages to do so and then um it's back to not being incontinent anymore, Mark, or, or pain around the um, around the room, um, and related to that, it's also. You know, encouraging clients to regularly groom those rabbits that um, don't have a partner left anymore, and um, it can be quite a simple thing to sort of show them and explain to them and clean their perineal region of that rabbit if they if they're having trouble and and they're getting a bit of perineal staining from secretcatros or feces and or urine stain as part of their their conditions as they're getting older um, and you know with those renal ones and and a lot of these older ones, they are starting to be a little bit light on, and they mark these ones. So, so get in some extra nutrition into them. And the, and the easy one there is using the critical care, the Oxbow critical care. And you know, it's amazing how many rabbits, depending on the flavour that you use, and there's a few different flavours. Some of them will readily eat it as a porridge themselves. Mark, yeah, you definitely that? that's the case. And um, and it is. It's always
1: uh, you know we use a lot of critical care, as the name suggests, at critical times. Um, for ileus and whatnot, but um, but we do. Uh, there a, a lot of our aged rabbits now just get a, a bowl stuck in their um, their enclosure or their the part of the house they live in, and um, they'll just lap it up uh, without um, even whacking it into a syringe. So um, I think it's a excellent way to get extra fluid and nutrition into them, and and that variety of flavors that uh, Oxbow have often gives people a chance to. Um, you know, whether it's uh, fennel or apple or whichever one of the flavours that a particular rabbit takes to, they tend to develop some avidity for the, the um, food and uh, and it does make their quality of life as they get older a little bit better.
0: Yes, and it's just trying to stop that, you know, cachexia and the weight loss and the weakness that then progresses and ends up being the one of the multitude of problems that we end up deciding that it's time for that particular rabbit Um, and depending on the client as well and we'll chat about this in the renal disease um, main topic when we when we cover that is um, some some clients are quite good at administering subcutaneous fluids to their rabbits at home Um, if you send them home with a with a um, give in set and, and some fluids, um, you need to pick the client, but some of them are, are very good at doing that and, and regularly giving subcut fluids to their rabbits. And the good news there is that it's nowhere near as painful in a rabbit um, because they've got all that loose skin can with would say, you know, I, I, I never send home subcut fluids and a bag of fluids to a client who's a guinea pig owner, Mark, because, um, guinea pigs scream when, you, scream when you look at them, but they've got that tight skin there and trying to give subcut fluids at home is, is, is very painful for them. So I certainly don't encourage that. Um, and the other simple things that they can do at home, the owners for these long term care patients are, are sometimes gentle massage and, um, um, you know they seem to enjoy um um you know just gentle palpation and massage, especially along the back and the and the hip area with them and I sort of demonstrate that to clients and and i and I have found that there has been it's not it 's not not common but there has been some rabbits that seem to actively you know jump into the arms of or try and jump into the arms of the client and and really seem to enjoy it a massage um, to to help relieve some of the muscles, muscle spasms that they have. And the, the other yeah. point that you've
1: made to me previously is uh, the provision of non-slip surfaces and we take advantage of that in the consult room by um, setting up, you know, if, if the rabbit goes onto a consult room table uh, that's, uh, you know, perfectly smooth that you can sense the increase in anxiety. Um, but at home they... They uh they definitely move around more and feel more comfortable if they if they're uh the, the, the floor they're on is not gonna slide out from under them and make them feel unstable.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So I think it's an important thing that you need to do. Go with go go through all of these things with the client with that age inpatient and talk about these these things that are often missed or, or not mentioned to clients, these simple things that they can do at home for supportive care of the geriatric rabbit with them. And as part of that, you need to have that big conversation or one of many conversations and fairly early on with them and talk about the the end of life um, of the rabbit and, and, and start working through um, the process of, hey, um, soon it's going to be Unfortunately, the time when we need to call it a day with your particular rabbit and introducing the topic of euthanasia to them. And I think the earlier you do sort of mention that to clients and, and start getting them used to it, um the, the easier it is for everybody, including the rabbit, because we're going to go through that two stage euthanasia technique where we sedate or anaesthetize the rabbit first before we. Euthanasia it to make it a kind and gentle euthanasia with them but um, and also having regular health checks so or more regular checks so often these geriatric ones that we see Mark we're, we're seeing those rabbits at least every month um, to reassess them and 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 having a new set of eyes and a professional set of eyes looking at the rabbit from afar once a month where we can see Sometimes an obvious deterioration in that month or few weeks since we last saw it, and we can then honestly say to the client, "Look, there's been a dramatic decrease in the quality of life, in our opinion, and maybe it's time to say goodbye for that particular patient." Do you have any other comments about the um, sort of decision making, Mark? Um, of, no, I think uh, you covered it
1: very, very well, Brendan, and uh, and I think um, that it that it is a uh uh, the one thing I would say is that it is—it's often a surprise to people because they're not seeing those things that uh, that, that we recognise that um, the subtle signs of ageing. Um, I often find that discussion—they're always difficult discussions—but it's one of the more difficult because um, because yeah, it's not expected. that people just see the rabbit rolling along and they said it every day, they don't see the gradual change and when you start talking to them about those quality of life issues. And I think it's a good point to begin it early because um, it can be quite shocking if you're talking about serious problems that they haven't even can- had canvassed, um, then then it that can be very distressing for the client. Yes, it certainly can. Um,
0: and that's where I think it's that whole unique aspect if, if you know if we're doing things right it's a bit of a decision between you and the client and you've had those good conversations um, with them and you're making the decision at the right time with them um, and the last thing I'd like to mention before we close off this episode Mark is brain age in, in rabbits and that's a interesting sort of aspect or, or a process that I think definitely happens in rabbits and actually they use rabbits as a as a model for Alzheimer's research in humans, because they have similar pathways, Mark, um, with a couple of the simple tests that are done to assess Alzheimer's in humans. Um, um, the same pathways work in rabbits. So they use that to, to, um, to test um, um, for the drugs that are used in rabbits. And, and I'm certain that rabbits get brain aging like most species do. And, um, and yet we don't. We don't think about the possibility of using some nootropic or nootropic drugs, these brain ageing, um, brain brain drugs that sort of help um, slow the progression of brain ageing in them because I do think we get dementia, et cetera, in, in rabbits. And I think that's a big area that needs a lot of work um, in the future. Um, Brendan, oh, just quickly, have you tried those yeah. drugs in any of your patients? Rarely, mark rarely, um and it's something i, I always think gee I, I I should have another bit of a go, but it's all anecdotal use with them, so those those vivitonin type drugs and that yeah. um with them um so yeah, but i I expect that you know five or ten years from now that um we will my prediction is that maybe a bit later than that, but we will be commonly using um these these medications in in older or well, not just rabbits but older, other pets as well because we, we've identified obvious brain deterioration with them and we're, we're trying to provide good quality of life as regarding their brain as well as the rest of their body, Mark. Um, you know, that's... Um, but perhaps it's when we're not around anymore. Who knows? We'll probably be popping all those pills all the time, Mark, um, fairly soon, I'd expect. Um, so with that... Oh, Mr. Intros jumped in. Uh, We will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website,
1: vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.